Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Blair, and thanks for listening today. I uh, just want to say, uh, I say that every time on every episode, but I really do appreciate uh, you listening to this podcast because um, <laughs> your time is valuable. Uh, and there are only so many hours in, in the day, only so many hours in your life, but um, I appreciate you spending some time uh, with me and with, uh, with my guests. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I, there was an English class I, I wanted to take. Um, I think I was a freshman and uh, I was going into my sophomore year. And uh, there was an English class I wanted to take. It, it was an advanced English class. Um, I was recommended by my freshman teacher to go into the, I guess, regular or average uh, English class, the, the, the standard one. Uh, but I wanted to go into the advanced one. To, the truth is my, my mom wanted me to go into the advanced one and, uh, and uh, applied appropriate pressure. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I pushed for it. So I went to my freshman teacher and I pushed for it. And she pushed back um, and I pushed harder. And finally she, she relented. And uh, there was a piece of paper that... I needed her to sign to get approval for this this advanced English class, and on it she wrote the words "expect bees." It's funny because I can't remember her name. I can't really remember what she looks like, but I remember what that piece of paper looks like uh, to this day. This is twenty years later, more than that, and uh, it was in pencil. It was dark. Uh, it was in big letters. It looked like it had been written in haste. It looked like it had been written with some emotions, maybe maybe some frustration. Um, and that paper, that little fire under me, um, I, I was feeling a number of emotions. I think anger, fear, some sort of sadness uh, or disappointment. But, uh, you know, I was... I had this burning desire to prove her wrong. I had this vision of me walking into her classroom with my report card with an A on there and and slamming it down on her desk. <laughs> I never did that, but um, that's how I felt. Um, and so I did get an A uh, and <laughs> I'm fired up just thinking about it um, because it was a pretty powerful motivator and even though I'm not in English classes anymore, it, uh, it still motivates me to this day, to be honest with you. Today's guest on the podcast knows exactly how I feel. Greg McNeil has been an underdog his entire life. Here's a person who came from very humble beginnings and has achieved a level of success now that is truly spectacular. Uh, this guy on paper is just incredible. I mean, he's a tenured professor of law and public policy at Pepperdine University. He's a co-founder of AirMap, the world's leading aerospace management platform for drones. He holds a master's in public administration from American University. He's got a JD from Case Western. He's got a PhD in public administration from Penn State University. He is a published author. He's written 28 scholarly papers, 10 law review articles. He wrote a book on the trial of Saddam Hussein, uh, and he's an active, active tr contributor at Forbes on the topic of public policy, transportation, and the future of mobility. 
In this episode, we explore where Greg comes from and how he found his way into the military, to the field of law, uh, becoming a professor, and now in aerospace startup world. We go deep on Greg's personal philosophy and how he was able to beat the odds and beat what everybody expected of him and prove everyone wrong. Greg also happens to be my longtime friend uh, back from Lehigh, and it was my great pleasure to have this in-depth conversation with such a powerful thinker and such an impressive human being. So without further delay, please give it up for an epic human, Greg McNeil. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I'd like to welcome our guest, Greg McNeil. How are you today, Greg? I'm great. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. It, I've been looking forward to it as well. We've been talking about it for a while, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Um, so just for context, uh, Greg is a tenured professor of law and public policy at Pepperdine University and co-founder of AirMap. Uh, the world's leading airspace management platform form for drones. Um, but Greg, I, we actually met uh, when I was in college. I think it was my first year. Um, and you were, I think you had already graduated. We were in the same fraternity. Um, and I don't, I don't completely remember the day we met because probably because I was inebriated, but I do remember, <laughs> I do remember maybe it's funny. I remember that day. <laughs> I was probably inebriated too. Oh, excellent. <laughs> But, uh, but I do remember, I think it was my second year because I think I was already, uh, you know, a member of the fraternity. And I, I do remember one conversation we had, what, again, when you were an alumni, you came back and, and um, what happened is you and I were talking, I think in the kitchen of the fraternity about uh, a candidate, like a, a rush candidate, which means a, someone who is, who is seeking entry into, into the fraternity. And, and you had had a good conversation with this, with this gentleman, and you thought he was kind of a, a cool guy. And I just kind of off the bat said, no, don't think he's a good fit. Um, I, I talked to him already, and, and you asked me why, and, and I, I think I had some you know, pretty superficial answers. I didn't have great answers. I, I, I said something along the lines, I thought he was weird or, you know, or, or something to that effect. And you kind of paused, um, and, I, and I remember you saying, you know, you have to be careful in judging people too quickly, and, and you have to give people a chance. And uh, lo and behold, that, that, that person ended up joining our fraternity and, and is still a, a friend of mine today. Um, and, and that memory just is quite distinct um, uh, in my head. And I was just wondering, like, you know, I know it was a long time ago, but do you happen to remember that? And... And I guess a related question is like, is that a is that a philosophy you've always had, or something you developed over time? Can can you tell us just a little bit about that this topic? Yeah. Um, so that that's um, I'm glad you told me that. Uh, you know, I uh, you get you get later in life and you start to forget about some of the things you figure that was probably what like six, eight, ten years ago, right? Something like um, that, yeah. And. Uh, and when I look back on myself when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, you know, that that feels like a wise comment. And I'm, I'm a little <laughs> amazed that I made a wise comment in my 20s and 30s, because <laughs> now that I'm in my uh, I'm, I'm 41 now. Now I, I look and I say, wow, I, I I think I have some wisdom, but I know enough to know that I don't. And so uh, but I, I think what what underlies the comment 
is um, my whole background is if you if you looked at objective measures or I, how about this if you did the Silicon Valley pattern matching thing, mm. which occurs outside of Silicon Valley as well, right. you would you would walk by me um, and never give me a chance. And uh, so at the time, uh, there were lots of reasons I think in my life even then that like I should have never got been able to go to Lehigh just based on the uh, on kind of the 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 metrics of myself as a person, but I was successful there as a leader and uh, there are a lot of other instances in my life where I think that I I think maybe you know pattern matching would have had people go by me and and I I would I think you know around that age I knew enough to know that there were a lot of those types of things. You could think of it as sort of elite filtering. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could you could see parallels to the way women are treated in the workplace. You can see it in academia where it's the, a desire to hire people who look like the people who were already hired. And uh, and I don't have that background at all, right? And mm. so I, I think that, I think I felt like probably at the time that that someone needs a little bit more of a chance than the than the first uh, than the first impression. And we'll talk offline because I really want to know who this was <laughs> and whether whether this person went on to leadership roles and and or if you were totally right and you're just friends <laughs> with someone who's totally socially awkward and, and <laughs> successful. <laughs> yeah, well, ha happy to have that conversation uh, offline. But I I think uh, I think the record will show that you were far more right than I was. Um, but but uh, you, you mentioned your upbringing and, and and kind of you know how that's influenced you. Can you can you just you know talk uh, talk us talk to us a little bit about your upbringing and the path that led you to, to Lehigh and beyond? Like, what was your family like? What were you like as a kid? Maybe just start from the beginning. Yeah, there, um, it's rare to go into this kind of discussion, right? Um, so, growing up as a kid, my my parents divorced when I was pretty young. Um, my mom remarried, um, and so when I say my parents, really, uh, it's my mother and my stepfather. My dad's still <clears> in the picture, but. Uh, he was kind of doing his own thing. And so my father was a used car salesman. My stepdad managed a machine shop and my mother uh, was a cleaning lady. And so uh, there's a lot of sort of hard work ethic things there. And and the three of them, uh, uh, well, uh, didn't go to college except for my stepfather who who worked while paying his way through college. He actually worked at an airport repairing aircraft and then um, you know, that's, that's the way he worked his way through college. So not the traditional path to, to college. And then to complicate things more, I had a brother with uh, severe mental illness. And so much of my parents' attention was focused on taking care of him. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn how to be pretty independent. And my mom jokes that when it was time to go to college, um, their plan for me was that I would go to community college for two years, then I'd transfer to a public university, and then I'd get what you know immigrant families my mother's part mexican my my you know my mm -hmm. grandfather sort of off the boat italian and so the the thing that a typical immigrant family would do which is you get a good job with a pension and a retirement and you know that was that was the ambition mm -hmm. um for me as the first kid in the family who was was bound to go to college and uh it's funny my mom jokes that somewhere along the line i was dating a girl whose brother got into lehigh university and I had no idea that I could get in, A, and mm. B, I had no idea I could afford it because of merit-based aid. Mm. But I had like a, like this was at the time when the SATs were 1600. 
I think I had like a seven something math and like a 780 verbal or something. So like (laughs) off the charts numbers that like clearly would have gotten me into community college. Um, And uh, I just didn't even know. And I was, I remember I was sitting at my girlfriend's house and they were so excited that her brother who was my age got into Lehigh and I said, yeah, I I could never get in and, and I, I don't have the, the money to be able to pay for it. And they said, well, what are your SATs? And I told them, they said, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you could get in. Sure. Uh, and I said, even if I got in, it's, you know, $50,000 a year or whatever the price was at the time. It was probably 38000 a year at the time. Um, and so uh, my mom, to get to the story, my mom says, you know, Greg is a kid. Once he put his set his mind to something, he didn't give up. And so the money thing, he didn't know how to handle it. So. He went in the yellow pages and he found a financial aid advisor because we didn't have the re- internet then. Mm. Um, and he found a, it was 1994 or three. Wow. Uh, he found a, a financial aid advisor and a financial planner and they still use the financial planner to this day. And the financial aid advisor was like, so there's this thing called merit aid and they're going <laughs> to uh, uh, and then there's this thing called financial aid and you're probably going to get merit aid and you're probably going to get financial aid because the income of your parents is so low that they wouldn't be able to pay the bill for you to be able to go through school. And so that was, um, you know, the probably an early story of what I was like as a kid, kind of Mm. this independent kid who'd take things apart because I felt like it to learn how they worked and um, just try and not be a burden on other people. Wow. Well, that that is a fascinating story to me because I think it, I mean, first off, it, it says a lot about you and, and, and kind of the grit that you were able to obtain, uh, at, you know, at an early age. But, but I think your story about college um, is, is quite poignant because I always think about, I think this is a perfect example of how um, opportunity is not is not equal, uh, which I think is pretty clear. But I think most people think about opportunity for young people in terms of of f- finances as well as in terms of kind of grades and and, and you know people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds don't necessarily have access to the best schools. But I think the bigger thing that you bring up is it's just you don't you don't even know what's possible because you're not necessarily surrounded by people who. You know, go to college or know about merit-based scholarships. I mean, you know, I just I think that's just one of the pieces uh, that's that's lost because it's so intangible, but it's a key part of the problem. Yeah, this is a this is an area of particular interest to me. I think just the way I'm wired, mm-hmm. which is figuring out how systems work, and so it's made me successful as an academic because I ask the questions I think that are. Uh, that are at a level deeper than why is the law, you know, whether the law is good or not. I look at why is the law the way it is? What are the impacts that the law has on people? And then what are the systemic reasons for things to be that way? Mm -hmm. And uh, that way of thinking about things translated into my analysis of of startups and opportunities in in business. And so that's kind of one part that, that I think has been taken into my my consciousness but then another thing that i think is is fascinating about um your point about equality of of opportunity um we can have equality of opportunity which is the only way you really get to equality of outcomes but Mm -hmm. just like you said the person has to know that there's even the option of the equality of opportunity there which if you are a first generation 
um, a college uh, a student. If you're, how about this? If you're a, if you're a woman who at some point early in life, all of the steering that happens, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter and, mm-hmm. and it's so clear that the steering is, it's pink and it's, it's not science, it's not engineering, it's other things mm-hmm. to the point where when she was four, she said to me, that's boy stuff when I was talking about, uh, you know, working on computers and building some things. And so by wow. the time she gets to 18, if I'm not working hard to push back at that, before she even can even get to equality of opportunity, she doesn't even know that that the the opportunities are, are there if I'm not conscious about taking an effort to make her aware that those opportunities are there. And and I think that's you know, the maybe that's a mental tick of mine that it's it's always about go one level deeper mm-hmm. and, and walk through a process and ask yourself what are barriers to entry in that process? What are what are places where it will fail and and sort of path dependencies that will prevent you from getting to opportunity and eventually to outcome? Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I think environment is so important uh, in terms of this topic of of knowing about opportunities. And and I I didn't really appreciate it growing up. I mean, I grew up the first half of my childhood in the Bronx and and the second half in uh, in Connecticut. And, um, and my parents moved us to Connecticut specifically for this environmental type of reason. I mean, the school systems were, were an issue, but, um, but uh, it, it was just a different conversation. Like even, even at a young age, it was just a different conversation of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or, you know, what are you going to do after school and things like that? Whereas, you know, in that second environment, which was, which was foreign to me uh, at first, um, it was just every, it was assumed everyone was going to college. Like, you know, you're going to make it work no matter what. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's not discussed enough, but so speaking of college, uh, so what was, what was your experience like, like when you, when you finally got to Lehigh, what, how, how did, you know, how did your background kind of inform your, your experience there? Uh, it was, it was pretty rough for me actually. Um, you know, the, the most dangerous part of, of Lehigh was, is, uh, the way I characterize it was getting hit by a Range Rover or a BMW. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I would get through, I had an ROTC scholarship as well. And so I, I would get, uh, $75 a month as my stipend for ROTC. And I, I thought that I was rich when that, <laughs> when that money came in. And, um, uh, and I, I think I just had a, a total lack of awareness, uh, coming from where I, where I did about what, what real money was, you know, I lived in the, in, in pretty good circumstances within my town, but my town wasn't the most wealthy and we certainly didn't live in pretty good circumstances um, objectively, but my parents worked really hard to provide everything they could for me. Um, but to see the disparity in money and spending and sort of credit cards that people had available to themselves and you know the ways they could decorate things and going on spring break was like a no-brainer and buying new clothes was a no-brainer, it was... Um, the the disparity was really striking to me mm-hmm. and i think that was hard for me but the way i um coped with it was i had a group of friends in my fraternity i threw myself into on campus leadership activities and uh i treated army rotc as my full-time job um and i think that helped me I think that helped me cope with the feeling that I, I didn't really belong amongst this group of people who, you know, I, I remember there was, you know, a kid who 
who said to me he didn't know how to cook. This was a guy in our fraternity. And I said, why don't you know how to cook? He uh, doesn't, you know, like, why don't you just cook whatever your parents cook? And he said, well, my mom doesn't cook. She just orders food out. We have like a hundred different menus and we just order food from, from restaurants. <laughs> and I was, I was like, every day? I said, yeah. I said, I, I said isn't, isn't that expensive or like, how does that, how does that work? Right. Uh, and you know, he went on to some, you know, corporate job in New York city that was kind of, you know, the way was paved for him, uh, by his parents, uh, and, and then ultimately went on to an MBA in, in some Ivy league program that his parents were, you know, graduates and alumni of, and just that, that door awareness leading to door opening were they were just things that, um, that I was clueless about, you know? So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And, and speaking of the fraternity, uh, you know, I think, I think the Greek system in general gets, gets a lot of bad rap, but I mean, we were both a part of it. We happen to be a part of the same fraternity. Did you, did you expect you were going to be involved in that system when you, when you joined? Yes. So, uh, no, (laughs) um, I, I thought it was a possibility, but frankly, uh, my orientation leader was a member of the fraternity and invited me up and I, I met people and felt like I had some friends and, uh, the people that I met in the fraternity were people who kind of had similar backgrounds to me. Um, you know, we weren't the, the fraternity next door, as you know, was the, was the, was the Range Rover BMW fraternity. Yeah. Um, uh, and our, ours was the, ours was the, the hand-me-down uh, Chevy, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my car, my car was a 1987 Mustang that I bought for $1,800 from, uh, from, uh, some people that my mom cleaned houses for. And it was in an accident and it had bullet holes in it. Um, <laughs> because the child of the doctor who my mom cleaned their house, um, he somehow got, you know, like he was from a good background, but got wrapped up with the wrong people and let somebody drive his car. Uh, and apparently it was like a drug transaction. And um, <laughs> and like there were like three bullet holes in the side of the car. And then the guy raced away and smashed into a, a telephone pole. So it had that damage. And then when you when you're in I know this from being a professor now, but like and when I used to work in a prosecutor's office, um you know, when you're involved in a drug transaction, once the police stop the car, when they search it, it's not like they're patting, you know, cushions. They're pulling like, you know, like the roof liner out and the mm. floorboards are getting ripped up. and everything. So the thing was trash. But my stepdad, who <laughs> worked in a machine shop and ran his own auto body shop for a while and um, to make ends meet, you know, he would work nine to five and then he'd come home and then at five thirty he would work from 5.30 to midnight repairing other people's cars or flipping cars to make money for the family. He took a look at it and was like, oh, 1800's a bargain because I can spend a couple nights putting the panels back in, patching up the bullet holes, making sure the engine works, <laughs> et cetera. You know, so anyway, so that was, you know, that was like our fraternity. And I was so proud of my car. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, I would like pick up these like uh, sorority girls and I'd drive them around and I'd throw like a, a cassette tape in and play my mixtape on my like horrible factory speakers that were just blown out. <laughs> and they, they'd get out of the car and I like remember now looking back that they were like, thanks so much for the for the ride. Cool car, Greg. And they were they were making fun of me and I didn't even know it. So, you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, so so I didn't plan on answer your question. I, I didn't plan on being a fraternity, but but it uh, but it worked out on certainly on the on the social fronts. Um, 
and uh, made some made some good lifelong friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had a similar experience. I, I was very skeptical uh, coming into to, to school about the whole system, but uh, ended up meeting some really amazing people that I you know I'm still friends with uh, today. So uh, it, it can it can work and it can be a healthy system. You know that that's involved with a lot of like entrep- uh, with a lot of volunteerism and, and things like that, um, which I think a lot of people don't know. So so so. You know, we so you were at Lehigh, and then you were you were doing your ROTC, and then what happened when you graduated? So uh, because I had an ROTC scholarship, I was uh, able to go straight into the army. So I had a, a guaranteed job. Right. I think the starting salary was twenty one thousand dollars a year, somewhere around there, plus housing um, housing money. And so um, I got assigned to the Signal Corps, which is basically. Uh, the technology branch of the U.S. Army. Uh, I went to Georgia for a couple months where I got trained on everything from satellite to radio communications to, you know, internet uh, architecture, um, you know, uh, land creation, fiber optic cables, microwave satellite shots, you know, microwave radio shots for long distance communications, um, systems administration for for, you know, I was a Microsoft Exchange system administrator um, and a whole ton of different things related to the person who basically occupied the information technology function in an army unit. Um, and then after a couple months of that training, I went to Korea where um, I was stationed in what at the time was the most forwardly deployed um, army unit because we weren't in, in combat at the time. So the most forward deployed unit you could be on was the was the Korean demilitarized zone. And um, and I had uh, 46 soldiers and 16 civilians that I was in charge of. Um, and my responsibility was to provide Internet, telephone, microwave, satellite communications to to 10,000 military subscribers. And so when something went down, it was my 46 soldiers and my 16 civilians who were responsible for doing everything from. I remember there was a monsoon and we were like out in the mud repairing a fiber optic cable link to, uh, you know, fixing a, a micro, I had a microwave, a Harris microwave transmitter that, that sent data and secure communications from, uh, from a mountaintop that I had to sign for that was surrounded by a minefield all the way down to Seoul, Korea. And then from, from Seoul that there was another microwave shot that went out to a naval vessel. I think it was called the USS Blue Ridge. Um, and yeah, so it was just this, it was just this fascinating leadership independent sort of technology management job. And then I left there and went to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, where I did a different type of communications stuff related to um, sort of battlefield intelligence. Um, and, you know, at the time, our battlefields were were, uh, were Kosovo and, and Bosnia and, and helped support those types of operations. And at the same time, was enrolled as a full-time master's student in the public policy program. And and did you were, did you have a technical degree undergrad or did you learn that all kind of on, on the job? So no, it, this is funny. I was um, I was uh, I went to a magnet high school, um, mm-hmm. which was called High Technology High School, which is, you know, if, to the extent that U.S. News matters, it's it's consistently ranked one of like the top ten public magnet high schools or specialty high schools in the country, and uh, so I had this the. I was using the internet in 92, 93, 94 in high school, Hmm. um, and doing like coding and programming and, 
uh, all kinds of stuff, computer drafting and design. Uh, and I had, so I had this technical background. Then I went to Lehigh and again, like stupid kid who didn't know anything and didn't have any mentors. Someone said to me, just take classes that you're interested in. It doesn't matter what you major in. And so I didn't have anybody to run that theory by. So I was just like, sounds like a good theory. I like international relations. I think, you know, why nations go to war is interesting. So, so that's what I majored in. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go in the army. I should probably know something about the world in which I'm going to be sent into. And it was like taking like a, you know, like a hundred social studies courses or something, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, so, so then the army and its wisdom, seeing my, my background in, um, in international relations was like, yeah, we should put this guy in charge of, you know, a bunch of Microsoft exchange system administrators and, um, and running telecom for, you know, second infantry division in, in, in Korea. So that's, uh, that's your government at work. Um, and it worked out for me, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that that was the right filtering. Um, or maybe it was, maybe they saw something in me that, that, um, that was valuable. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds, sounds like it, it worked out in, in this case. <laughs> um, and so, and then you were getting your your master's in public uh, administration, and then what what was the transition out of the military like for you? Yeah, that's that's rough. I think it's rough for everybody because um, you know, right out of college, you're given substantial responsibilities. So it was you know the the number of soldiers I told you about. The second mm -hmm. job, I was the number two in command of 180 people. And so you have this extensive leadership and management experience. You're responsible for millions of dollars worth of equipment. You manage a massive budget. Um, you do things ranging from, you know, like I like in my second job, I had 16 Humvees that that because of management failures, what we call in the Army leadership failures, uh, only half of them were operational. And so, you know, I kind of came in and said, so this isn't acceptable. I don't know why it kept happening. And then it was a series of sort of leadership, what you what we in the startup world call standups. But each morning I got together with my with my leaders and I said, what's our status? Where are we at? Are we tracking towards our goal of fixing it? So you have those types of experiences in the military mm -hmm. and people outside the military think, oh, you're running around in the woods and you're you're playing war, and then when you go to war, you're going to war, and they don't recognize. I think that that you're responsible for people. It's yeah. a people job, and so you know you're responsible for ensuring that all of your soldiers have vaccinations and uh, you know and uh, and dental done so that they can deploy on a moment's notice. You're responsible for the vehicles, the equipment. Uh, the equipment isn't just military equipment, right? It's desks and it's basically startup stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You got to set up a new office. You got to do all this stuff. Some of it's provided by the government, but you'd be surprised how much of it is parallels private sector life, right? You you buy instead of buying from Office Depot, you buy from a GSA website to get the to get the furniture in, and you manage all of those things in the same way, like a good sort of ops manager at a at a uh, at a startup is running these things. So the transition from that though, like many uh, 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 veterans, to me was hard because I was in I transitioned out and then I had grad schools already that I sort of fell into. Mm -hmm. So I was a master's student, I had a bachelor's from Lehigh, I had all this experience, you know, leadership and management experience with budgetary experience. And uh, and I couldn't get a part-time job to pay my 
my bills other than like I worked in the alumni office at American University where they they basically had me doing data entry. And I was like, wow, six months ago <laughs> I, I was doing blank um, <laughs> right. and now I'm doing this. And it wasn't that I that I thought I was above the work. I just I felt like I wasn't utilizing all of my skills and, and like it, I was, you know, wasn't exactly achieving my life's purpose. Sure, sure. I, I think another misconception people have, and, and maybe you can address this, uh, about the military is that um, the, the leading of people is just inherently different uh, because I think a lot of people assume you're in charge, there's a, there's a hierarchy, and therefore you just, you know, you say the word and things happen. Um, but from what I've heard, it's, it's, it's actually not like that, and it's actually more nothing, like... <laughs> nothing like that at all. Um, <laughs> maybe you could talk about that. <laughs> I gave orders all. It's more like if you ever watch a few good men, um, mm -hmm. it's more like Lieutenant Caffey at the, you know, so when you're deployed, it's a very different thing. So people who are in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever else right now, and they come back when they were deployed, you know, people listened or they got shipped home. But when you're not deployed, which is, you know, another third to two thirds of the time, depending on what the global situation looks like, um, you're in what they call garrison environment or like, you know, you're in a cycle where it's just a job of, of similar to any private sector job. And so the, a few good men sort of analogy is, uh, Tom Cruise plays this army lawyer, uh, I mean, sorry, Navy lawyer. And, uh, you know, the, the comparison was to his experience at Washington DC and Jack Nicholson's char character in Guantanamo where they had to wear like camo or someone take a shot at him. And Tom Cruise is like, uh, you know, he's like, I give orders all the time. Nobody listens to me. <laughs> yup. It's exactly like that. And, you know, so to the people who say, uh, you know, if like, if I was in a partner meeting and someone's like, that's not real leadership, you're in the military, you tell people what they do and they, they do it or they go to the brig. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, any of those people listening, if you ever hear that in a partner's meeting, um, uh, that's the same kind of thinking that everyone would laugh at you if you just said, well, he's got the CEO title, so everybody in the startup is gonna listen to him or her right. and do exactly what he or she says. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, right, or, you know, or they'll get fired, sure. Like, just try, just try that in, in your own firm, right? <laughs> do all of the employees do what they're told? Uh, e even though, you know, e just because they have a supervisor, no. Right. And so the, it's no different in the, in the military, really. Um, uh, leadership challenges are leadership challenge, irrespective of, of the organization you're in. The, the, the org just changes the context a little. Yeah. And, and that, and that does make sense because I mean, I think it's universally understood or, or kind of accepted that, uh, being in the military, being an officer in the military gives you great leadership experience that translates really well into the civilian world. And if, if it were true that every order was followed perfectly, um, then that, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. But um, we, we wouldn't even need officers at that point, right? We'd have AI <laughs> right. choose the most efficient outcomes in any situation. And then the officially appointed AI robot would tell you what to do because everybody listens to a person who has a title, right? right and it's just, right. It, you know, so that's, um, you know, one of those things that people do. I think that it's, it's just, uh, as you said, it was a real common misconception in it. And it's, a, it's one of those things where you can have a blind spot to, uh, to the merits and the, the, the experiences that someone can, can bring to the table. So at what point did you start to get interested in law? When, when did that originate? 
Yeah, that happened in my graduate program. I, I took a few courses on law in my policy track, and the the professor who taught law and public policy said, "Hey, you know, you're pretty good at this. Have you ever thought about law school?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, I've thought about it, but um, you know, can I do that with my master's and and you know, not necessarily law, but at least the policy stuff?" He said, "Yeah, you can, but you'll never be taken seriously by the legal people unless you have a law degree." And so it, it's you know it's better for you to get a law degree and and the master's to be really a, a trusted law and public policy person as opposed to a person who just knows a little bit about policy. So I I took the advice, um, uh, you know always one data point of advice at this point because I was still in my twenties <laughs> and applied applied to a couple of law schools and ended up. Uh, getting a good scholarship to one and decided to go there. And Case Western Reserve, that's in Cleveland, right? Yeah, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and I had gotten into Georgetown, but I didn't have a scholarship. So I went to Cleveland. And this was still kind of poor kid thinking because in hindsight, if you want to do law and public policy, you have to be in D.C. or you have to be in a state capital. Mm. And then um, – Law is as elite snobby as you can possibly be. The The question is always, where do you go to law school? What were his grades, right? Those would be the questions that would be posed about me. So when I say sure. he, I'm personalizing. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not making it a kind of a gender comment. Right. And, uh, you know, and so those would be the questions that would, that would be posed to me. And they're still posed to me now, right? Where'd you go to law school? Like as if that's the, the most important uh, indicator of my life's accomplishments at 41 years old, like, you know, where did I go to law school and where you go to law school is purely dependent upon two factors. What was your GPA in undergrad and what was your LSAT score? So you look at people who are considered elite, you know, lawyers, they went to Harvard, Stanford, or Yale, usually maybe Columbia or Chicago, uh, or NYU, right? Top six law schools. Mm -hmm. And, the reasons they got into those law schools where they had a good GPA in undergrad and they got a good LSAT score. What's the number one way to get a good LSAT score? Spend 90 days in an intensive LSAT preparation course, which requires you to have 90 days where you can not be working and the money for the LSAT course, right? And so uh, yep. so this is me being you know, kind of harsh about the status of, of sort of everything. My <laughs> 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 angsting about everything is that um, it becomes a, an elite finishing school sort of thing. Yeah, right? the, totally. The, the idea that ever in my life I would have 90 days to sit and do nothing other than work on my $10,000 LSAT course. <laughs> uh, like when have I ever had a 90-day break? I'd have to get hit by a car and be a coma in a coma to get a 90-day break, you know? Um, <laughs> and so the, the, so um, – so on the on the numbers, I got into Georgetown, but I didn't get a scholarship, and so I went to I went to Case Western. Nice, nice, and uh, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your your very influential professor and, uh, and and kind of how law school unfolded in an unexpected yeah, way. Yeah, totally. Um, so I get into law school. First year was fine. Uh, in my in my second year, I took a course on counterterrorism. You know, having been an army officer, I thought you know I I could probably handle this course. This will be pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's like 2003 at the time, I guess. Um, and, uh, he's a, he was a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the Israeli defense forces. And he just started saying things that, that I wasn't sure were correct. And, um, 
at the time I wanted to kind of brand myself as like a counterterrorism policy expert um, mm-hmm. because that was the really hot field at the time and a little bit of homeland security. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was a good blend of my personal background and my interest in policy. So that was the kind of the reason I was in his course. And in parallel with that, I was running a blog focused on law and terrorism and it was getting, I mean, I was, I was up there in like, like Instapundit, who's this famous like blogger linked to me. I was getting linked to from famous, like big, big time inbound traffic. I mean, the traffic Hmm. numbers were through the roof. Uh, And uh, so I was following all the developments in terrorism at the time, blogging about them um, and had like a big followership. And so I took this class with the professor and because I was spending, you know, couple hours a day every day reading about and thinking about uh, um, counterterrorism policy, when he would start to say things in class, I'd be like, ah, let me push back a little bit. Um, or like, <laughs> hey, you know, in my experience, whatever it might have been, right? And so um, because he wasn't a regular academic who went through all the elite finishing schools, uh, Amos, his name's Amos Giora, he, he was very good at saying to himself, oh, I like this. I like someone who's pushing back. Um, better, better to have a friend who's pushing back at me, or you know, bring this kid in, mm. than to than to put my stuff out there when it hasn't been vetted by someone with a skeptical eye. So after about the second class of me being um, the the real participant in a seminar, he came up to me and said, "Greg, you're going to work for me. You are now my research <laughs> assistant." And I said. I am. He said, yep, you're going to go to some office. And then he's, this is the, like the quote, you're going to go to some office. I don't know what the office is. You're going to get some paperwork. I don't know what it is. You're going to fill it out and I'm going to start paying you money to help me. And I was like, well, what does the job entail? He's like, a lot of what you just did, but you're going to read my papers and you're going to tell me if you think they're good. And then you're going to fix all my footnotes and do all of the menial tasks that I expect you to do because you're a law student. But what I really want is I want you to apply your mind critically and shoot holes in everything that I do. And uh, for the second year of law school and the third year of law school, I basically he gave me a title. I was like fellow in terrorism and homeland security. <laughs> and he gave me authority. He would he's like, I can't go to this event. You've got a master's. You were in the army. Go to this event. And I show up and I'm there as Amos Gura's deputy, like not as some law student right. doing like, you know, note taking tasks. And I'm seated at the table with like, like a two-star admiral and an FBI special agent in charge of a field office, and we're doing a, a desktop exercise on counterterrorism. And it was, uh, you know, lesson learned from that, right? A person, a leader, a mentor who said, "Cool, uh, I think you've got a few things to offer. Take this ball and run with it, and I'm not going to place any limits on how far you run." And mm. uh, that's just cool. And I do that to this day. And, um, it, you know, maybe it comes off as tough love with my research assistants, but I, I benefited from it. And so I'm repeating that with my research assistants. And then I repeat the exact same thing at AirMap. Um, at AirMap, we, you know, we'll hire people and, and in startups, you have to learn how to do everything. And so I'll work with my colleagues at AirMap to say like, well, let's just give it to so-and-so see how they do. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> that's quite that's quite the uh the israeli kind of model as well um or, or at least the, the the personality that they're they're known for oh, totally, just just totally, hey yeah. you push back on me i like that 
you know, you're going to work for me. Like not, not asking, telling, but <laughs> it's also, it's also like the immigrant Mexican, um, Italian self-sufficient sort of thing, you know, so right. like we, we think my grandmother was undocumented. Uh, and so she kind of raised her kids to say, you know, you're not going to learn Spanish. You're going to learn English. You're going to work your butt off and you're going to, you're going to make sure that you stay here because anybody can send you away at any point in time. And, uh, but then, you know, part of that is this toughness. And then the toughness carries over even into family situations where, you know, my grandmother had a phrase, my mom had a phrase, and now I've adopted the phrase, which is I said it and I meant it. Deal with it. Right? <laughs> so it's just, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's more Jersey than California, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I concur. I mean, growing up, well, like a big part of my family is Italian, and uh, I feel like that that ability to push back and and kind of debate and whatnot was just like, you know, just you just get that training kind of on a daily basis, like over dinner, like when the families get together. There's just, you know. It, from the outside, it might feel like a, an argument, but it's actually a, a discussion. <laughs> totally. That's, that's my, I married a Texan, uh, and people in Texas are polite. Yeah. And, um, everyone thought like for a while, my, my wife and her family thought I was fighting with people. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's what are you talking about? It's just the way I talk. I was just telling them, I was just telling them it was a stupid idea. And I wanted to hear their thoughts on, on why they didn't think it was stupid. You know, like sure. <laughs> just, you know, too honest. So, so, so he threw you in the deep end and, and you figured out you could swim and, and all of a sudden you started kind of gaining a, an expertise in this area. And, and so how did that, how did that end up serving you? Yeah. So this is the big turning point in life where I realized that, that expertise is a combination of grit and, uh, which is really kind of work ethic, right. Um, uh, and time put in, um, but actually, I also think expertise is partially socially constructed. You know, so the things that we believe about what makes someone an expert that, you know, uh, oh, justice nominee so and so went to such and such law school. That doesn't that doesn't make the person an expert. Right. That's mm. a that's a credential. Um, what makes a person an expert? And this is what I really love about entrepreneurship is they've dug into the issue to the point where they've mastered the basics of it. And then they also know the advanced things, the possibilities, the variables that would change their analysis. And an expert can be um, not just knowledgeable, but um, malleable in their ideas. And they're able to pivot in their ideas and flexibly look at things. And so when you understand expertise in that way, you can understand why someone can go from a let's just pick a hot topic a scooter startup to a health tech startup to an advertising startup and uh and we value that what we're valuing we say is we're valuing an experienced operator with startup expertise but i think when you go to the level level deeper than that we're valuing a person who's figured out how to combine the grit, the knowledge gathering, and the flexibility in their approach to circumstances to be able to handle anything. And then we label them as an expert. And so repeat founders, I say, are startup experts. Um, and whatever domain or thing they need to learn, you know, you're, you're, you're a founder, you've got to learn marketing. Uh, do you have to do marketing? No, but you've got to learn it. So you're an expert in 
startups because marketing could be important for the startup. Agile development is important for the startup. You have to know those things. You don't have to necessarily be able to do them, but you have to know them well enough to provide the value into the startup. And so at this turning point in my life, I was learning how, how expertise required constantly learning and figuring out how to incorporate new concepts, new ideas into my identity at the time as a, as an expert on national security policy. And, um, and so there, there were a lot of things I learned beyond just the substantive knowledge of national security. Um, and they were really, really personal things. And so wh where did that lead you professionally when you, when you finally graduated? Yeah, ultimately it led me to a fellowship um, sponsored by DOJ where I was doing counterterrorism work. I was doing some advisory work with the Department of Defense on terrorism. And all of that ultimately led me to become an expert, a national security expert on drones and drones being used on the battlefield. Um, and you can kind of trace where this where this story is going, right? Mm. Um, so I become this expert on drones on the battlefield. Um, and that's all anybody knows when they hear the word drone. They think of bombs being dropped on on bad guys and sometimes drone bombs being dropped on the wrong people. And um, uh, and my phone would ring off the hook about that. Uh, I wrote kind of a seminal piece that's that was my dissertation in my PhD program. I left that part out. We left the PhD detour out, but we don't have to go into it. Uh, so I got a PhD along the way while I was working in this fellowship and, um, you know, kind of burnished my credentials as an expert in national security policy. But the drone thing really took off, so to speak. And then all of a sudden in 2012, Congress passes this thing known as the FAA Modernization and Reform Act. And the headlines are you know, drones, battlefield technology is coming to the United States. And I started having people call me as a drone expert to talk about the implications. And um, I quickly got spun up on FAA regulations and on civilian uses of drones. And I started consulting with companies who wanted to know something about the regulatory environment. And one thing led to another, and I became an expert on drones and autonomous systems. And so, you know, drones are basically flying, you know, people say, uh, autonomous vehicles and I ask them, uh, ground air or sea because, you know, <laughs> autonomous vehicle, uh, you know, a lot of people think driverless cars, um, right. uh, and, but it's a broader area than that. And so through pushing back from my academic desk and doing consulting with companies, sometimes paid, sometimes free, going to the industry conferences where, where I could learn about industry instead of going to the academic conferences where people talked about things that they thought they knew something about. I was like, I don't know anything about this. Why would I talk about it until I go learn a little bit from the people who are engaged in this? Um, and kind of, you know, this, the army concept is leadership by walking around, which I still think is an important concept for outside of the army too. Like mm -hmm. you, you should walk into the engineering room and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, I know they like it dark and off in the corner with headphones on, but <laughs> you got to walk in there sometimes and you have to see what's going on. You have to pop into the daily standups. You have to kind of touch things, even though some things in startups are not touchable, they're intangible. Um, and, you know, so that, that was something I was doing then by going out literally touching drones, flying drones, um, going to different places to learn about them. And I, I became a drone expert, uh, according to others. Um, and I felt <laughs> like I had some drone expertise too. And that, that ultimately kind of led to the, to the point where, uh, where I realized that I had some entrepreneurial ideas that I should pursue on my own. 
I see. I see. And, uh, and and maybe you could that that would be a good lead into talking about the uh, the genesis of AirMap. <laughs> um, yeah, Air, AirMap. Um, the best way to describe this is that it was uh, an idea that I knew had merit, and a lot of other people didn't seem to want to do something with it. So I was consulting with um, with drone companies on regulatory stuff, and I you know I started to say to them listen, like eventually your system needs to do this on its own because if it's going to be autonomous, it's not going to be able to call me on the phone and ask me what it should do. <laughs> and so it has to it has to understand the world around it. Um, and so today, what we needed was, we need this today, 2012, um, 2013, 2014 is when I really started generating the ideas for the business. People would fly a drone and they didn't know they were near an airport. They didn't know there was incoming um, uh, manned aviation that might uh, that their drone might crash into. They might not know about um, state and local restrictions on flying over prisons or parks or in other areas. Um, and there's a whole separate argument about whether or not those laws are valid. Um, all, all of the drone industry is wrong, um, except for AirMap and a handful of other companies. But that we'll get to that. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, and so, I, I had a friend who was in venture, and I told him about like I keep talking to these startups, and they don't seem to want to do anything with with my idea. And he's like, Yeah, of course. Because it's your idea, and their business is focused on A, and your idea is a supportive function of A. And so if there are 100 companies in the drone industry that are doing A and another 100 that are doing B, and, and you walk me through, you said, and you're valuable for all of those, it sounds to me like you have a really good platform play here, and that should be your thing, and everybody else will use you instead of you taking your thing and trying to fit it into their model. So I really started iterating on the idea and whiteboarding it. And then this guy emails me out of the blue. He says, hey, you know, I know you're a drone expert and like to talk to you about X, Y, Z. And at this time, I was getting all of these phone calls from people who basically wanted like free advice over coffee, mm -hmm. which is fine if you're, you know, I joked with you about this. That's fine if you're in venture because, you know, you've, you've got, uh, that's your job, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're getting paid to meet with people. And um, at the time... I was maxed out on being able to meet with people and learn new ideas. And there was a lot more of me giving uh, than me getting in those interactions. Sure. And so I kind of had to shut them down. And my, my wife joked at the time, she's like, oh, what, another guy who wants free advice? <laughs> um, but uh, so this this ended up being my it's my co-founder, Ben. And Ben's great because Ben is persistent. Um, <laughs> and so I said, hey, let me, you know, I'm jammed up right now follow up in three weeks. And my hope there was that, you know, oftentimes I'd be like, most people won't follow up. They don't care. Right. right? right. And so you know, that's like check one on whether or not the person's <laughs> worth talking to. Um, <laughs> see if they'll wait a week and right. if they follow up. If they don't, like, you know, okay, maybe you're not the right person. So he did follow up. Uh, I was busy again. They followed up a third time. I was like, okay, this guy's trying hard. Let's see what he's got. So we went to a coffee shop, we sat down and um, we're talking about stuff. And, and, you know, I was telling him, I, you know, I said, yeah, you know, I'm doing a little work. I think, the, you know, the industry is really going to need something someday where where drones will know, where operators will know all kinds of things about airspace rules. But then eventually the autonomous drone is going to need to know those things, too. And unlike a, a car on a fixed right of way, the things the drone needs to know are invisible because they they're regulatory triggers. They're you know a, mm -hmm. a car on a roadway sees people and uh, and stops and avoids them. Um, it understands sort of pre-programmed uh, things about 
about uh, traffic patterns and speed limits. A drone in the air has to know that like it just crossed over from class C airspace to class B airspace or that a new temporary flight restriction has popped up within a certain number of miles of a stadium. So all this kind of data that had to be known. So I'm mm-hmm. telling him this and he goes, hold on, hold on. Let me show you something. And he whips out like a beta version of an, of, of an idea he had um, that was basically, you know, one of those just mock-ups. And, uh, and he starts talking to me about his idea. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to steal my idea. <laughs> right. And this was, this was when I was early in, in startup land where, where I still believe that ideas mattered and yeah. you needed to keep ideas secret. Right. And, right. uh, and so, you know, being a, a, a schmo lawyer at the time, uh, I was like, dude, we should talk, but here first, I want you to execute this NDA and I whip an NDA out on my phone and he's like, okay. And, uh, <laughs> fills it out and sends it to me. I was like, this is cool, man. I'm thinking about doing the same thing. We should crash on this. We should work together. Uh, Ben's a little less excitable than me. So he wanted to slow it down, uh, <laughs> and, uh, see how we talk, see how we work together. And so we, we committed to basically crashing on a three month project that we bootstrapped. I emptied my retirement account. Ben put some money in. Um, and we went from March to May of 2015, trying to launch an, a, a, a web app that would do a lot of the things that I said. And we did, and that was AirMap. And within the first few days, we were at thousands of people using the site, thousands of visits. Um, the system was basically crashing because we expected, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a thousand people. It was like day one, we were at 8,000. Um, and, a big part of this was that uh, as the drone expert, I was writing at Forbes and uh, I had all these connections to media people. So when we launched, we were featured in Popular Mechanics and then we were featured somewhere else. And so we immediately moved into a fundraising phase so we could grow the team to actually be able to have a system that would support all of the traffic that we had. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, that that's where we get to today, a two and a half million dollar round led by Lux, you know, three, three, four weeks into our fundraising process, um, you know, a 15 million dollar A led by General Catalyst, a 26 million dollar uh, B led by Microsoft Ventures, the biggest uh, lead investment that Microsoft Ventures has made uh, to date. And they've made they've made dozens of more since uh, since 2017, I want to say, when we raised and so that kind of takes us to today where, you know, this little idea we had is now in hundreds of airports. It's we provide 90 percent of the authorizations for the FAA uh, for for drones to fly near airports uh, for the FAA. We provide the entire drone traffic control system for the whole nation of Switzerland. Um, we just we just closed uh, closed that contract. It's a nationwide contract with with big time upside potential. And then we have a bunch of other nation states in the works where, um, where we are in two forms of disruption right now. We're disrupting heavily regulated industries and we're disrupting the sort of sycophantic, um, I don't know what you would call them, the, the, the leeches of the aerospace industry who live on government contracts Mm. and, uh, and we're showing up at meetings before they're there. We're, we're, we're just doing the kind of work that if you, you know, well, you have an MBA, right? When you read mm-hmm. disruption theory, like we're, we're, we're doing that. And these are legacy players in a heavily regulated industry. And so at the same time we're doing that, I'm crafting my own, I could write a book about it someday, my own theories of disruption of heavily regulated industries. And it is wild and it's awesome and it's exhausting and it's, you know, 
all of those things that, that you get with um, having a startup that's having mostly successes. And it's, it's crazy. Wow. I mean, what an incredible journey. And, uh, and I happen to know a few of the people uh, that you mentioned, including Ben and, and, uh, and folks like uh, at Lux, like Bilal and, and, and Microsoft. And uh, you've, you have an outstanding group of people. You, you've a, you two have, have amassed an incredible group of people around you and around this idea. And, uh, and, and you know, congratulations on all the progress. Um, Thank you very much. Just, just curious, because you, you, you mentioned it. Um, what are some of the the learnings that you've had in in terms of building startups in highly regulated industries? Because the context is that you know traditional VC kind of avoids you know a lot of these industries because they think well you have to deal with the government, you have to deal with some sort of regulatory policy happening, and 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 that that provides uncertainty, that provides risk. So let's just avoid it. Um, but you know what we've seen in in the past you know, years is that, is that some of these old industries that are highly regulated are starting to uh, get disrupted or, or, t- or starting to adopt more innovation. So I'm just curious, what, what are some of the like kind of broad lessons that you're, you're, you're gleaning from your experience? Yeah. Um, the big lesson uh, is that um, Silicon Valley is horrible at this. Um, and uh, venture guys are horrible at this. And there's a massive opportunity. Um, and so I, I consult with a few uh, venture firms right now. Um, and I think the opportunity, um, when I say massive, I, I, there's, there's just industries that capital doesn't go into. And so the people who put capital into those industries are going to have big successes, right? And so um, the easy examples are, the, are, are Uber and Lyft, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Heavily regulated taxi industry. But look at the other places that they're going into now, right? They're going into, they're going into scooters. They're going into aviation. Why? Because they figured out that uh, a little bit of of kind of what what my theory is, which is that um, it's not as risky or as uncertain as uh, people in venture would make it out to be. In fact, it there it it's predictably irrational. Um, there are things that happen because of pathologies within government, right? And so you might have, I'll give you an example. We, we went to the FAA. We had rolled out a system that let drone operators tell the airports that they were flying near the airport. We had hundreds of airports in our program. When I say airports, like you push a button in the AirMap app and it lets LAX or SFO or Denver International or Houston know that you're flying near the airport. Um, you know, that is life-saving, valuable technology. Hundreds of airports loved it. I went to the FAA and the FAA said to me, and I was not surprised. Um, I was surprised at the candor. An FAA <laughs> official said to me, I love what you're doing. I think this is amazing technology. But let me tell you something. You're not going to get anybody at the FAA to sign off on this. I said, what? I'm a little confused because you just said you love it. He said, don't get me wrong. I'm, <laughs> I'm your biggest fan. Um, but this is new and this is different and you're a startup from Silicon Valley. And I said, actually, actually Silicon Beach, because we're from Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and he said, uh, and so nobody trusts you. Nobody trusts that you are reliable, like Boeing or Lockheed or someone else. And those guys are in this building every day. And they're talking about their systems every day. And they're going to bury you. 
Um, and he said, he said, so that's your first problem is that you are not the trusted inside player. And this entire thing is built around the trusted inside player. And he said, second, um, nobody in this building gets promoted by putting more drones into the airspace. In fact, nobody in this building gets promoted by putting more airplanes in the airspace. He said, do you know what the safest day in American aviation was? And I said, no, tell me. He said, the day after the worst day in American aviation. So September 11th was the worst day in American aviation. And September 12th was the safest day in American aviation because all the airplanes were grounded. So nobody could die in an aviation accident. And everybody in this building didn't have to worry about losing their job for making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, so, so what is that? I, that's predictably irrational, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a series of decisions based on context, based on pathologies of the, of the institutions in which the person works that, that tell you that there are going to be barriers, but those irrational barriers are not insurmountable because there's, there are law and policy structures that allow you to change them. And so after 180 meetings, 178. I rounded up. <laughs> Airmap had 178 meetings. I kept track of them in a spreadsheet. We got our program called the Digital Notice and Awareness System, which was a software platform with a dashboard at the airport, um, a mobile app, a series of developer tools. We got that through the FAA as a concept mm-hmm. um, that the FAA then did a request for information about to see if other people could fulfill this concept. And um, a bunch of people responded, legacy companies and others. 44 responded. It got down-selected to 12. And today, it, the the uh, the program is called LANCE. That's the FAA's acronym. Mm-hmm. And the approved for, uh, providers are AirMap, Verizon. It's a company called Skyward, but they were bought by Verizon. And mm-hmm. so, so AirMap, Verizon, Boeing, Raytheon, um, and Google. Uh, oh, yeah, and Amazon. So... Legacy players uh, and uh, sort of companies, big companies that benefit from from slowly changing the status quo. You know, Google and Amazon are not disruptors. They're they're just they just mod- modulate the status quo in their favor. Mm-hmm. So they're fast. They're faster than Boeing, but they're not faster than us. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those companies uh, all publicly traded. Uh, and so that is a example of disrupting a heavily regulated industry. That if I told that plan to a VC, Mm. they would look at it and they would say, first of all, you just imagine that partner meeting. First of all, they have a great plan. These guys know things. So you'd get like the prefatory, like nice comment. And then whoever the the cynical partner would be, but let me tell you something like they've got a plan. They're going to talk to some people in the FAA. Maybe there's a process. Maybe there'll be some outcome at the end of this. Um, but then in addition, they're up against Google, they're up against Amazon, and that's before we even get to the fact that they're up against Boeing, Lockheed, Raytheon, and all these other incumbent companies. And you'll get talked out of the room on that because the other potential deal on the table is something that as soon as the money goes in, growth will happen, and somebody will want to put more money on it six months or a year down the road, and the IRR will look better for the for the LPs. That thing's going to fizzle out and die, though. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe like uh, the odds tell us that it's going to fizzle out and die Um, versus putting your money in a place where uh, the immediate returns aren't going to look as good. But the outcome at the end of the life cycle of the of the fund may be better. Right. You may actually have an exit in there. You may have a profitable company. You may have an IPO, but you have to be willing to get through a couple rounds of funding before the 
company gets to where it's going and recognize that the milestones may take 12 to 18 months, not six months. So you might have to put a little bit more capital in uh, than you otherwise would. That should work in this funding environment where companies that a couple years ago would get two million now get five million. But the thinking hasn't changed to recognize that if you can cut bigger checks now and you're trying to deploy more money, then you should deploy that money into things that have a longer time horizon, not a thing, not things that pattern match onto growth. And so I think Silicon Valley just gets it totally wrong in that way. And I'm not faulting anyone. You just have to know how uh, how heavily regulated industries operate. So that's my first lesson, and I'll, I'll be short on the second one. The second mm -hmm. one is um, most of the drone companies that I saw um, uh, did not have, so when people started putting money into them in 13, 14, 15, the investors who put money in them didn't have a good picture of the regulatory environment, and the startups themselves being tech people uh, without outside advice or without in the company advice didn't really understand that like Jeff Bezos's prediction that in 2016 drones were going to be delivering packages was going to be completely wrong. But I looked at it at the time and I just knew it because <laughs> if today you need a new piece of legislation, for example, you're not getting a new piece of legislation to be discussed in the Congress until starting in. Uh, so today we're in we're in July. You're not going to get it discussed until March of 2019 before it's even discussed. And it won't get voted into law until the end of the year. Why? Basic civics, right? Uh, Congress mm. meets once a year, and the way the process works is you're gonna. You, there are certain windows when you have opportunities. The same is true if you think you need a new regulation to be able to do something. There are standard processes, and so I was able to basically in each of our quarterly meetings turn to Ben, our uh, my co-founder, and say, "Yeah, dude, here's. I know you're hearing this and that, but let me tell you, I can tell you the exact quarter." you know, plus or minus a couple of months of when that thing realistically is going to happen. Um, and I can tell you, it's not the optimistic prediction. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's the second learning is that the timing is predictable if you know what you're predicting around. Uh, so market timing and market risk can be planned for. And then the third is that just because you have a solution doesn't mean that it'll be accepted by government. And even if it's cheaper and more efficient, because governments have to benefit, have to balance other interests they have to balance equity, they have mm -hmm. to balance access. And so it can't be purely a monetary thing. You're not selling to, it's not SaaS sales. Right. Um, sometimes, you're, like, sometimes you're not even selling to the government, right? It's the government is affecting the marketplace in which you're operating, a la Uber. And so you have to recognize that just because something you say is safer, look, our taxis are safer, our people, I mean, our Ubers are safer, our people are background checked and you can track them, okay. But some council member, let's set aside if they're being paid by the union, by the taxi unions or the taxi lobby, some council member is like, well, I've got all these laws here and I've got to work through with my lawyer and the town council what the best new policy is because we've had these taxi laws for 100 years. And so um, all of those are knowable, right? They're known knowns. There's a few uh, known unknowns, uh, but you have to have a different playbook um, and a different uh, investing philosophy to be successful in this domain. And there are not a lot of people who have that uh, that background. And I think that's uh, that's another place where Silicon Valley could generate some bench talent and do a lot better. Yeah, I, I think that's that last point is is what I was thinking most of the time as you, as you were talking is, is having the people with that expertise uh, either on the team or 
or maybe even at, at the venture firm um, to, to kind of be able to coordinate that or at least set the proper expectations and develop a, a plan that's, that's rational. Uh, and then the other way I think about these, just these regulated industries is that, um, yes, it, it can take longer. Yes, it can, it can take more capital. But the, the barriers to entry are, are high. So it's kind of like once you get over the barrier, your defensibility is is much stronger. I mean that. Uh, yeah, that, totally. I mean, like, yeah. listen, who's gonna who's going to be the um, unmanned traffic management provider for the entire nation of Switzerland five years from now? I can tell you who it's going to be. It's going to be AirMap. Um, Google's not getting in. Amazon's not getting in. Lockheed, Boeing, Airbus, Talus, Indra. These are companies with massive market cap, mm-hmm. publicly traded. And they're not going to get in because uh, AirMap, we moved faster and we're uh, and and we moved into an industry that because of the way big companies work, big companies don't move into industries until 18 months out. They can predict what the what the revenues will look like by spending money to go into them. It's just the pathology of 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 uh, large publicly traded companies. And so they have to have some CFO do the analysis on what the money is going to look like on the ROI 18 months out. But if you know that the market um, for this, for something is going to be massive, let's say, uh, let's say 48 months out, the smartest thing to do as a startup is to get in there at the ground floor and have a hundred percent of a tiny pie that the large companies are not even thinking about. Yeah. And then two or three years down the road, they're going to have to pay you to get into that market. Um, and that's the, uh, I think that's the smartest way to, to get into these places, use your speed and your competence in narrowly focused areas to go after the, after the business that, you know, the large companies will eventually care about, but they haven't gotten there yet um, because they don't believe that the regulations are going to change or they, they, you know, they're, they're risk averse and they think in legacy terms. And that's, that's a huge weakness that you can exploit. Yeah. And, and, and as you mentioned earlier, this is, this is classic Clayton Christensen's uh, you know, theory of disruption. Um, and then another analogy people uh, that, that I like to use is just a blue ocean strategy. Um, I, I'd say one criticism I have of Silicon Valley in general is uh, I'm amazed at how frequently um, uh, invest, you know, big, big investment firms will just go after the same market um, that where there are already other five to 10 other companies doing the exact same thing. And we, and just invest on the bet that, well, there must be, you know, there's definitely a market there and this is a better team or this, you know, has some, some iterative advantage that we think you know is is going to work out, whereas a lot of the blue ocean opportunities are are kind of ignored because it's it's deemed too risky. When in reality, it could be it could be less risky in the long term. Yeah, that's the that's the herd mentality. Yeah. Um, and like I've got to get in on this thing because other people are in on this thing, and I don't want to be left <clears throat> out. And you know, I wonder if that is. Um, just sort of a natural phenomenon that happens with people, you know, sort of like the, in everything, not just in their, in the professional world, but just in things they do, right. Trends. Why do, why do people 
have certain hairstyles. A lot of people wear certain sunglasses, right? Why is it all of a sudden, you know, this year, fluorescent pink and highlighter yellow, like plastic sunglasses are coming back? Because the 80s are back, right? And people <laughs> just jump on it. And they and, and so, you know, you, so it's easy to critique the herd mentality in, in, um, in Silicon Valley, but there's something underlying it. Um, I think the the root causes there and, and some of the challenges might be that everyone recognizes it, but are you looking inward to say, okay, do we have a clear sense of what our investing philosophy is? Have we created a series of filter questions for ourselves to protect against biases or herd mentality or anything else? And then that way of approaching investing in the, in the side of things that, that uh, founders don't see will impact what the what the ultimate portfolio of the company looks like but it also allows the the fund to be honest with their LPs when their LPs call up on the phone and say everybody's in scooters why aren't you in scooters <laughs> you have a, you have an answer that says the fact that everyone is in scooters we told you when we asked you to invest in us the fact that everyone is in something is not a compelling factor for us to invest in and so you know thanks for your call i love you Steve, big investor, Susie, big investor. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me something that makes some of this unique that you think fits our investment philosophy? Because I value your opinion just as much as I value your money or whatever. And I, I think that kind of way of having an honest conversation leads away from bad choices and, and, it, and it's more transparent and it creates a better, uh, you know, LP to, to real partner sort of interaction. And I think that's going on at some places, but at others, it's not. I think the, the best firm at doing this is Bullpen Capital. Mm. Bullpen Capital, uh, headed by Paul Martino, they have a very clear investment philosophy. They also don't invest, uh, they, they also are proud to invest in people who don't who don't match patterns. You know, they're outside Silicon Valley. Other investors won't take a look at them. They're in a marketplace that, that investors are scared of, like gambling or alcohol. And their track record has been great because they are going to places, unlike a, a like a five-year-old soccer game, they're the kids standing outside of the little cluster of five-year-olds who are chasing the ball, ready to pick up the ball and score a goal. And then they also are good at spotting the trends based on data, based on their expertise, to use another sports analogy, the Gretzky analogy, to skate where the puck is going, not where it is, not where everybody, not where the crowd is, but instead to project forward. My experiences with them, their investors in Airmap, has been fantastic. And I, I think they have the right approach. They have a philosophy and they stick to it in diligence, in investing, in everything that they do. And, and uh, I think they're a good good uh, group to look to. I, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think they're a great firm and and, uh, and I'm a big fan of Paul's. Paul, Paul uh, just for people who don't know, is, also happens to be another fraternity brother of ours in, in the same, full, at the same school. Full disclosure, I should say I'm an LP in, in their most recent fund. And so... Um, so gotcha. Disclose that. Yeah. Well, good. But um, and and I would say that um, just in response, I, I think there is one practical consideration, which which I think probably skews the the landscape a bit, is that uh, I think the way some VCs rationalize it is they say, hey we have to reduce financing risk for our company. So we have to invest in spaces where there are growth investors that are going to follow us, you know, or series B investors, or C investors, or whatnot, who are going to follow us down this road in a year. 
Um, and so I think sometimes they get caught up, uh, investors get caught up in that mindset is like, well, I have to invest in the hot spaces because those are the, those are the spaces that are going to get invested in a year. But I think that comes back to bite them, uh, sometimes uh, and that, a and year that's, later. I think that's wrong. I think it's yeah. wrong. Right. So, so if you invest in a company that, you know, you need additional fund, you, you, you can guarantee yourself that you're going to need additional funding to be able to run the thing, which by the way, Show me how that's not the vast majority of companies, right, that that are invested in, right? So most companies raise a seed and probably need an A. Um, and so there is some funding that's going to come down the road, and eventually some of them will need growth growth funding. But but it's wrong to think of it purely as investing in the spaces that will get the follow-on funding. I think instead it's um, you invest in a way where it's clear what the milestones are that are necessary to get the next set of funding. And you see this in like after the B, right? Or really after the A, oftentimes the the saying is that you need, there are certain amounts of revenue that you need, you know, certain growth metrics and sort of everybody accepts those. Just like when you're at a D, if you think private equity is going to take you out or you think that you're going to IPO, there are certain metrics that you have to hit. And so if you make it metric driven from the seed um, and the and the A round, early as and and you show these were the metrics that were set this is what we need to do to be able to raise that next amount of money uh, that's a better way to focus around it and then it lets the the guys and gals when they go out for uh, and they're at those cocktail parties and they're meeting with other investors who are upmarket investors at the at the later stages they can have a conversation not around what deals are you doing but around what kind of metrics would you be looking for in this industry to be able to 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 be follow on money for us? And it, I just think it changes the narrative um, instead of being about about um, particular industries or particular teams or particular quote hot companies. It's about what are the metrics for a successful company in that space. Uh, that that's just kind of my slight contrarian take on on uh, on the good point that you raised, right? Which is there is this necessity to protect the money. Yeah. No, I, and, and I, what I was going to say is, is along very similar lines. I think it's a flawed strategy um, because what ends up happening is you, you go to that, that next round with your company that looks no different from those 10 other companies and it, it becomes a challenge to, to, you know, even if it is a hot space, it becomes a challenge to, um, to, to promote that company in the right way where I, I think the investors that are really successful are the ones that have the vision very early on, you know, are partnering with the founders uh, that, you know, that are going after the non-conventional industries or, or technologies or strategies and, uh, and, and are, you know, and share that vision, support the company. And then as the company hits those milestones that you talked about, then you have a very compelling story to go out and, and, a, and a unique story to go out um, to, to the market with. Um, wanted to shift gears just a little bit, just because we didn't talk at all about, um, about your other, the other part of your life, which is, which is being a professor. Uh, so how did, how did you become a professor and, uh, and tell us a little bit about, you know, the work that you do there? I should not be a professor That's <laughs> based on, based on the elite credential and filtering. Um, and so, um, uh, how did I become a professor? I decided I wanted to do it and someone told me there's no way you'll ever do it. This was a professor at, at my law school. He said, there's no way you'll ever do it. Um, and I said, why not? And he said, well, you went to a law school that isn't Harvard, Stanford or Yale. 
and therefore you're not going to be able to get a job. It's too hard for you to get and you're not the right you're not the right person. Plus you're like a, a guy who was in the army and people are going to think that you're a bad person. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that was honest. I said, and what I said, so then I, I, as a guy who stopped taking no for an answer, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I said, okay, so what would, I said, you, it seems like there are some certain kinds of like patterns and thoughts that people have about this. What would it take for you to overcome that if you were looking at me as a candidate? And he said, well, you know, it takes, three law review articles to make tenure and um, usually one or two law review articles to get a job. So, so he said, I, I'd probably say someone like you needs to get um, publish 10 law review articles um, uh, to even be considered and they'd have to be in the best journals. And, um, mm -hmm. and you know, you're, you might want to think about getting a PhD and maybe publishing a book. And I was like, okay, so so I have to do six times as much work to get through the door. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, yeah, you basically have to do a career's worth of work to prove that you can do your your next career's worth of work after you get in the door. And I said, okay. And then I went out and did exactly that. And so I wrote I wrote ten law review articles. I published a book. Um, I got a PhD. Um, and uh, and when I got tenure. I sent that professor a copy of my tenure letter and a greetings from Malibu pepper because Pepperdine's in Malibu, mm -hmm. a greetings from Malibu postcard. Um, and so not when I got the job, but when I got tenure because, uh, and so, so that's a long story on, uh, how did I get into it? I, I just, I just pushed my way in, um, and I couldn't get through the front door. So I went in through the side door and I just learned the process and what was valuable to them. And, and in, I went, um, and so that's the, the short version of a, of a story. It was, it's a little pathological, I think. Isn't, isn't that the best feeling? I mean, I still remember, I still remember teachers I had that, you know, or, or relationships I had where, where, you know, someone told me they didn't think I could do something and it just, it just drove me. And I still think about some of those comments today and it, and it still continues to drive me, but isn't that the best when you're able to kind of, you know, prove them wrong? Oh, that's AirMap. That's so when Ben and I went out um, to fundraise, um, a bunch of different like brand name law firms told us. I mean, uh, venture firms told us there is zero chance that um, a startup is going to do air traffic control. It's going to be run by the FAA. It's going to be. Um, it's going to be. Uh, the services will be. You know, the FAA and the companies doing it will be Lockheed, Boeing, Northrop. Uh, it's not going to be you. And even if it was you, you get like the standard lazy VC question, like, how are you going to beat Amazon or Google or Microsoft? You know, which is like, it's like if I was pitching a refrigerator startup and Google decided to get into refrigerators, I'm not going to beat Google on refrigerators, right? Just like you won't beat Apple. I mean, like they're just like, like it's a, it's a, it's a silly unfair question, but in any case, so we are, we're pitching them and that's what they told us wouldn't, wouldn't, they told us it wouldn't happen. Um, they told us that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to get DJI to work with us. Um, they, they told us we wouldn't be able to get airports to work with us. And it's funny, like 30 days after closing our seed round, I went out and I, I closed a deal with, with DJI and, uh, and, uh, uh, the world's leading manufacturer of drones and 3d robotics at the time was the world's le America's leading manufacturer. And, uh, Ben closed a bunch of other deals, 
um, with with a bunch of other uh, drone companies while also being the CEO. And then we closed deals with 100 airports. And then now we're in the FAA. And and each one of those, no way it'll happen, um, makes me feel so good to the point where I wish I wrote down all of the objections we heard along the way Mm -hmm. so I could circle back and have them as a checklist of like, and that's done. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a yes. Um, And I just think that, that that's, it's so much fun and it's so redeeming. It's, it's what makes, uh, startups so interesting. I think it's, it's what, uh, you know, when people say you get the bug, I think that's the bug that, that is, uh, that I'm currently, uh, afflicted with. Yeah. And speaking of afflictions, um, uh, I, I know an interest area of yours is, is the startup culture and, you know, the mentality that comes with it and, and issues in, in mental health. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your views on, on that? Yeah, this is, um, I think about when, you know, growing up with a brother with mental illness. And so it allowed me to learn a lot about the circumstance. Um, I think it also impacted me a little bit, right. You know, so, so I think everyone has their own, their own issues. And I, and I think I have this version of something that we, we reward in Silicon Valley, um, which we should on the merits, but we also have to be careful to watch out for, for our people. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to give a moral reason why we should, and then I'll give a, I'll give a pecuniary reason why we should. And that, and that is that the moral reason we should care is that is we should just care about the people that we're working with. Um, and one of the things we do is this, this work late hours, work nonstop, um, do whatever you have to do to get it done mentality. Uh, I, as a former army officer, I love that. I love that kind of like gritty push as hard as you can. But, you know, in the army, when people push hard, there's a, you know, so when we go on a mission, there's a, there's a, a vehicle in case someone gets hurt and there are medics nearby in mm-hmm. case someone gets physically, physically harmed. Right. At, mm-hmm. um, at an institution like, like, uh, Pepperdine where I teach, there's a network of people who are available and that is sorely lacking in most startups. Uh, most startups don't even, you know, don't even have an employee handbook early on and they're not thinking about benefits. And, and I think their VCs will tell them that looks like a lot of overhead and you should be focusing head down and getting your project products done. Um, I want to say that that's wrong morally, but I also want to say it's wrong financially because the person or persons who are probably grinding it out the hardest are your founders and every VC, like I'll just run through every, it's like a standard VC WordPress template. We invest in founders. We invest in teams. Okay. You invest in founders and teams. Um, it sounds to me like all of your money is riding on the success of your founders and teams but you're not encouraging them to have a wellness plan in place in case they're in case they're overstressed at home because of the hours that they're working, mm-hmm. which might trigger a mental illness or might trigger some sort of alcohol um, abuse issue. And so um, there's this like cottage industry of leadership coaches in Silicon Valley that every time problems come up, uh, you know, the investors will say, well, I got this leadership coach, you know, he works with Zuckerberg you know, talk to this guy. Um, and, there's not a similar support network to make sure that you're helping people be well. Now it exists at a startup like Headspace, right? It exists mm. at a, a, you know, a, 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 a you know, a meditation startup kind of company. Uh, maybe it's some fit tech companies, but I think, um, I think venture could do a much better job. You know, you're on a board, you need to be thinking about not only the company, but you need to be thinking about the big major asset you invested in, which is the people in that company. You lose a founder, you're going to have 
a significant problem. You lose a CEO, you're going to have a significant problem. And that might be a big cause of, of where capital is lost in, in, in the Valley. And so I, I think the small cost, um, in time and actual money to put programs in place to help founders, uh, is a, is a huge benefit because once you can get to the founders and they understand, uh, how mental health can impact themselves, they'll put in programs on their own to make sure they take care of their people. And I, I think that's just a missing component. And, you know, uh, if we, we have great, we have great benefits inside AirMap because we've paid attention to this mm-hmm. and, and my next startup, whatever it is, or if I, if I go be a venture partner or something somewhere, um, I'm going to try and have this conversation with people as well. I, no, I think it's, it's critically important. Um, in my, my own experience, uh, founding a company was one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my life. And, and, uh, my, my, and it's hard to explain to people who haven't been through it. Um, and, and I always say, I always give the caveat that my experience was a very, you know, very amateurish, uh, you know, type experience. I, I didn't have the added pressure of having raised millions of dollars and whatnot, but I was still, I mean, maybe, maybe it was partly the pressure I put on myself, but it was still like every night before I went to bed, I was thinking about the company. Every morning when I woke up, I was thinking about the company. My list of to-dos was, you know, ever, ever growing and, and never shrinking. Um, and uh, I also didn't have the benefit of a co-founder, which I, I you know, I wouldn't do again. I would always, you know, I, I think if I were to do it again, I would, I would have a co-founder. Um, and, and then just the other anecdote that comes to mind is... Um, one of the first firms I, I was working at, I was working with a portfolio company CEO and just just doing some regular work together. And uh, years later, I, I read in the news that he, he happened to have taken his own life. And, uh, and I think it was, you know, partly, if not mostly due to the stress of trying to operate a, a company that's, you know, that's, that's undergoing a lot of challenges. And, and uh, I mean, I haven't known that many people in my life that have uh, that have done that, and and one of them happens to be in that position. So I think it's a really important uh, issue. Yeah, and you know what? What? And you know what? We don't recognize is that. Um, so, so, like, if we reframe mental illness as just illness, and if I told you that, um, if I told a, a group of investors that that. Uh, that everything that occurs in a startup environmentally is, um, is akin to, um, a founder. It it creates the risk environment such that a founder might get mesothelioma, right? right? Or, uh, like it's like an asbestos risk. They would say, Oh my gosh, we have to do everything possible to make sure that our founders don't find themselves in a place with asbestos. (laughs) Um, but because, mental illness is oftentimes just in society treated as like this thing that like, why don't you just suck it up? Oh, you're depressed. Why don't you just like go find something to be happy? Um, it's, it's disregarded oftentimes and it is an enormous risk to the stability of the portfolio, uh, of companies that, that, uh, that, you know, funds are investing in and they should treat it like it's an environmental health risk. And, um, and if you do that, it reframes your way of thinking about the problem. And it also prevents things like, you know, you mentioned the suicide. That's the, that's the, you know, the, 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 the outcome that we see that, that we remember, but there are so many other negative 
externalities of mental illness, like a, the founder can become or a CEO or whoever suffering from it. your CTO, one of your engineers, they become irritable and they become an employment problem mm-hmm. and you have to fire them, but their work is otherwise good. Or maybe their work suffers because they're not cognitively able to handle what's going on, all of which could be ameliorated. And like everyone who that says, you know, everyone you meet who invests says they invest in founders. Yeah. And then they say, and then their next thing they say is the most important thing that you need to do is build a team of great people. Yeah. Could you imagine if if you build a great team of people on the Lakers or the Warriors, and then you don't have trainers, and you mm-hmm. don't have professionals to tell your highly paid people how they might be suffering injuries, and you don't put in measures in place to to prevent those injuries, you would be a failed owner of the Warriors. You'd be a failed owner of the Lakers. But we don't think of that um, oftentimes enough on boards about how we're failing as partial investors or owners of a company in the same way we'd be failing if we owned a basketball team. Sure, sure. No, that's 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 the perfect analogy because um, then you you put it in a real context of, hey, this is not only a this is not only a health risk or a or a people risk. This is you know that it can translate directly to uh, a financial risk that we can mitigate you know in a very uh, in a, in a very deliberate um, practical way, which might appeal to more financial investors who who don't have that kind of social um, intelligence. Uh, so you you know you talked about um, you know being a professor. You talked about uh, things going on in the future for you. What's, what's, what's kind of in the future for you? You mentioned writing a book, you mentioned potentially, uh, you know, joining, uh, becoming a venture partner. I mean, what, what's, what's on your horizon besides, you know, continuing to execute on the things you're, you're already involved with? Yeah. So, um, I've got to continue working with AirMap to make sure AirMap's successful, but, um, you know, I, I've also recognized that I'm at a point where my unique talent set Um, you know, I thought it was going to take us five years to achieve the policy victories that we did and, um, we achieved them in three years. And so my unique talent set, um, you know, could be used in other ways and I want to have a big impact on the world. And so I have to kind of carefully study, I think now, am I having as big an impact on AirMap as I can, or to have a big impact, will I need to pivot to something else with inside the company that, that someone else might have greater talent for. So that's one part of what I'm thinking about. And then another part of what I'm thinking about is I, I think that I, I have the, the leadership ability to, to help accelerate ideas in, in really early stage companies. Um, and, and I've learned enough to figure out how to grow them now. And I'll, I'll continue to learn more in my role at AirMap. But I, I think I have, I have more startups left in me mm. and, um, and uh, more of an impact uh, that I can make on the world. And so then the question is, are those startups that I found, are those startups that I advise, are those startups that I invest in? And uh, I'm on a path of exploration right now trying to figure it out. I've, I've received some offers to leave, uh, leave Pepperdine and leave AirMap and go work at um, some big tech companies to duplicate the work that, uh, that, we, that we did here, uh, that we did at AirMap. Um, and that's kind of like an open offer. Uh, and then some entrepreneur and residence opportunities and some venture partner opportunities. And I'm really just trying to figure it out. And I have the luxury of, of being able to figure it out because, uh, I can go back to, you know, um, 
kind of any, I can focus my attention on any of my activities kind of at any point in time. So I can I can ramp AirMap up. I can I can do more in my teaching. And so uh, I feel really fortunate to have the opportunity to think about what I want to do next. But I, I probably have to figure that out. Right now, um, though, I want to make sure AirMap's hugely successful. And if that means that it's my contributions and pivoting those away from policy to other things, then then that'll be my contribution. Um, and then if there's someone who can do it better, then I then I need to I need to find that person and bring that person in. And so it's a I'm in a couple month period of reflection here and just trying to talk to lots of people, people like you, um, and figure out um, figure out what I might be best at. Excellent. Excellent. Well, happy to be helpful along that journey and, uh, and definitely, you know, keep us in the loop. I'm sure the, some of the listeners would be interested to see hear where you end up. Um, so, you know, apologies, we've gone way over time, but yeah, um, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to split this into two or something, man. Like the yeah. first part is like, it's all know, good, man. Yeah. It's all good. There are no, there are no rules to podcast. We, we can I'm make this afraid, thing as long I'm as we want. The, the <laughs> listeners never got to the, you know, to the, they, you know, we went through superhero origin story, but they never got to, uh, to the, to the, to the stories of, of startup stuff and other things that people might think qualify as epic human activity. Well, you know what? I think, uh, I think we, we kind of naturally organically explored a number of interesting topics and, uh, and I think that's fantastic. What, what, but I would like to, um, while I have you a little bit longer, would love to go into kind of the rapid fire section just to learn a little bit more about you as a person. Does that sound all right? You, you think you have some time for that? I, for you, have all of the time. <laughs> you are so, so gracious. Um, so, so we'll start off with an easy one. Uh, what do you do for fun? This is a problem. <laughs> it's also one of those problems we need to identify across the startup world. I only recently realized that I stopped doing everything I like to do for fun and, uh, <laughs> and because I was dedicating so much time to trying to shape the policy environment for drones and get the right people into the company and write articles about it. And you start to add up the time I was spending on those things and I wasn't doing a good job at it. So recently I've really gotten back into hockey, which I used to play hockey when I was in high school. I was a captain of my team. I played a little bit in college. Mm. So I've got back into hockey. I got my son into hockey. That's why kids are great. They can mm. kind of force things and you've got to, <laughs> nation and people can't really push back against it. You don't have that guilt. It's not like yourself, you're doing it for someone else. And then I recently got a half season ticket package to the LA Kings. And oh, I try nice. and my daughter one game, my wife one game, my son one game, and then someone from work. And so watching hockey, playing hockey has become a, a hobby. And then I really like outlining ideas and sometimes they're an idea for a blog post and sometimes they're an idea for something else. The challenge with that though is it's stuff that I really like to do that ends up being work stuff. And <laughs> right. I really find things that are not work stuff. It makes you better at work when you're doing non-work things, right? So um so that's that's not a rapid fire answer. That's a long answer. No, that that's <laughs> good. That's good. That's perfect. Um <clears throat> so I've I've known you for a long time. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious about this particular question is what is something you believe that maybe, um, few others believe so, something that's, you know, not like your least popular opinion of, of which you probably have many. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that contrarianism is not 
um, hostility, right? And contrarianism <laughs> is something that we should reward and we should always um, gut check ourselves. I think we live in a society, cer certainly in the fields that I work in, in law, where where the the desire to be right always oftentimes is posturing that outstrips um, the desire to be open to learning. And um, so I always, I, I, this is a fault. I'm, I'm really my own worst critic. I'm, I'm very hard on myself, but I think the benefit of being really hard on myself is that I learn more. I force myself to question things. And, and I believe that when people outwardly do that, that spirit of debate, that thing we talked about earlier of, of like, you know, the way it, the Italian household dinner happens, mm -hmm. that we're losing that spirit of debate. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that um, in our political discourse, in our work environments, and uh, I would say this is a thing I believe that, not that no one else believes, but that that um, that not as many other people believe as, as is probably necessary for us to really achieve our full potential as a society. Yeah. Great, great answer. Great answer. Um, what advice do you have for young people? You know, let's say they're they're in school or they're just out of school, not sure what to do with their lives. I think a lot of people have that kind of conundrum. What's your What's your advice for for people at, at, in that stage of their lives? Uh, I I get this question from my students all the time, and I tell them you have to do anything. <laughs> uh, or another way of saying it is you have to do something. And so if you're waiting for the right opportunity um, at a, when you're young, you don't know enough about the what the right opportunity is. And so you have to go out and explore those other opportunities that are present in front of you. And the act of exploration, that what I said earlier, the act of like learning by walking around or leadership by walking around, ends up getting you to the right place. And so it's not about the job that you have to get. It's about getting something. That's what you have to get, which exposes you to the, to the world and helps you generate ideas about what it is that you want to do and that you don't want to do. Cause someone coming straight out of college, especially someone coming straight out of college and then they go straight into graduate school has had, you, you end up having a, a artificial, artificially stable lifestyle and you don't know enough about yourself yet to be able to figure out what you'd be good at or not good at and what you would enjoy. And so I, I think getting out there and forcing yourself to do something, even if it's, like I said earlier, filing papers at the alumni office, right? I learned I don't like filing papers. Mm -hmm. And that was an important lesson for me. <laughs> yeah, learn, learning what you don't want to do is, can be as valuable as learning what you do. Uh, what is a favorite quote you live by? Um, or another way of, of asking that is if you could put a billboard up um, for the world to see, what what would that quote be? This is, this one's easy. So um, on uh, on Bruce Springsteen's "Greetings from Asbury Park" album, which I grew up in 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 the town right over the bridge from Asbury Park, um, he has a he has a song called "Growing Up," and there is a line in it where he says, "I stood in the crowded wrath of the cloud, and when they said sit down, I stood up." And uh, I, that's my, that's my anthem. Awesome, awesome. Well, I, th I think that's a great note to end on. Um, so the last question I have for you would be, uh, how can people find you, follow you, hear your views on things? Yeah, if you go to G 
as in Greg, S as in Scott McNeil, M-C-N-E-A-L.com. You'll get my webpage, my contact forms, all that stuff. So gsmcneil.com or Gregory McNeil on Twitter uh, or look up my name on LinkedIn. Uh, just do Greg McNeil and Airmap and Pepperdine and it, it'll show up. And I'm super excited to talk to people if anything I said resonated with them. Awesome. Well, Greg, just want to thank you for your time. Uh, this has been you know, one of the longest podcasts for, that we've done, but also one that I've enjoyed the most. So, so thank you uh, for sharing your views and being so candid. And, uh, and thanks for everybody listening as well. But thank you, Greg. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you happen to be using. And if you want to keep up to date on the latest Epic Human Podcast, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Epic Human Pod. And if you have any ideas for guests or feedback on the show, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.